and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about Jackie, which is a recent biopic about Jackie Kennedy right after the assassination of JFK, directed by Pablo Lorraine. And we are discussing this because it recently came out in the UK. It's been out in the US for a while. I believe it's still in theaters because it got nominated for a few Academy Awards, including a Best Actress nomination for Natalie Portman, who plays Jackie Kennedy, Best Score for Mika Levy, who is one of the most exciting young composers working in movies. We'll talk about that a little bit. Mika Levy is amazing. Yes, she's genius. <laughs> um, and costume design, which is more kind of predictable since it's a historical film, but the costumes are amazing, so that's also very deserved. This is a really kind of unusual biopic. We were actually just discussing in the context of something else, a movie that we watched together a couple of years ago called Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, starring uh, John C. Riley as a country musician who suffers some tragic things in his youth and then goes on to be a kind of Johnny Cash figure. And this film is basically a parody of biopics like Walk the Line. It's unmissable because like as soon as you've seen it, you realize that every single fucking biopic, especially the kind of art and music ones, are just completely following the same formula in a really crappy way. Like, oh, it's like the perfect parody. I honestly would put it up there with Spinal Tap. It's perfect. For me, <laughs> Spinal Tap is in a category of its own. It's also not doing exactly the same thing. It's a mockumentary no. and not no, a... No, no, it's different. But yeah. just because like people do not recognize the genius of Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. <laughs> well, once you've seen it, when you see any other film that's doing anything remotely similar, you start to recognize all of the beats. I mean, not that you don't recognize them anyway if you've seen a bunch of these films but they really start to stand out um (laughs) i was really annoyed because i saw it shortly after seeing the james brown biopic and i was reviewing the james brown biopic and at the time i was like this film is really bad apart from the central performance which is great but if i'd seen dewey cox first i would literally just been like watch dewey cox (laughs) (laughs) beat for beat the same fucking film (laughs) yes so Instead of trying to encapsulate all of Jackie Kennedy's life into a two-hour movie, which would not work, and never works despite many filmmakers' attempts to do the same with various historical figures, Pablo Lorraine and the screenwriter Noah Oppenheim, who has a fascinating backstory that we will talk about in a little bit, um, basically focused on just a few days after the Kennedy assassination. And I think this was really, really smart because it allows them to make a kind of experimental film, essentially, that still has a plot, but it's very, very unusual. And it's not really intended to be informative. It's based on factual accounts and it's kind of framed around a newspaper interview she did with Life magazine shortly after. I think it was like the first really big interview she did. But... It's not something where it's there to teach you about information. And I really enjoyed that both in the context of other kind of biopic type historical movies that are effectively docudramas and people get really hung up on the factual details. And also in the context of JFK in general, because every conversation about the Kennedy assassination is basically linked into people's conspiracy theories and like, what really happened? And in this movie, that's pretty much an afterthought. Like you do see 
brief moments of the assassin but like largely it's all about kind of jackie's mental state and what she's doing at the time and her kind of her motives in the way that she's trying to control her public image and that sort of thing which is really not something that most people are ever considering when they're thinking about the, the JFK assassination. So it's like the perfect choice of angle to make a new movie that actually feels fresh instead of rehashing stuff. Right. And that, yeah, the endless obsession about the sort of, you know, was there a second shooter, et cetera, et cetera, when there wasn't a second shooter. <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna state that my factual, not even opinion on that. That's just a thing that didn't happen. And the, JFK biopic by Oliver Stone from the 90s was about a lot of stuff. I have not seen it, but it's two and a half hours long. So he crammed a lot in there. But a lot of it is about this sort of like conspiracy to kill JFK, which is fake. I mean, there was this, they don't have a lot of the details about this because Lee Harvey Oswald was shot before he could go on trial. But um, my mother's an American history teacher and for like a couple of years after that film came out, she would have students be like, well, but there was this big conspiracy. And she would have to be like, no, there was not. It's just that you watched this movie and had all this crap in it. Like There was some kind of official House of Representatives sort of reopening of the investigation a few years ago, God. where their eventual conclusion was that they thought it might have been a conspiracy, but they couldn't nail down which one of the conspiracies they thought it was. <laughs> it's just so, and it's so... That is not interesting or productive to discuss at this stage. Like, we don't learn anything about JFK or history or anything by continuing to talk about that. Yeah, and And when you compare it to the number of people who are seemingly unaware of the way that US security services uh, harassed Martin Luther King, right? Yes. Because it's like people were very fixated on the idea of a JFK conspiracy. But then the idea of, I mean, not a conspiracy against MLK, but kind of the idea of like the background of the way that he was being treated and the fact that we have actual sources that make it extremely clear that he was being like harassed by the FBI. And then that doesn't become part of the public narrative unless you're really already informed about kind of the civil rights struggle. It's just like, ugh. (laughs) Yes. Just to get off topic for a moment, but that's a fucking nightmare. (laughs) Yes. But... Jackie's doing something really different, which is sort of investigating the ways in which we process and understand history and how history is created, and specifically how women do that and engage with that, which I thought was a really interesting topic for a film. It's not something that I have seen very much, and it seemed to me a perfect topic for a biopic because that's what all biopics do, whether or not they explicitly discuss it, which they almost never do which is fine because they're different movies are trying to do different things but what the film is centrally about is in the aftermath of the assassination they had to decide how JFK was going to be buried and what the sort of funeral arrangements were going to be because obviously when a president gets shot or indeed dies at all uh there are lots of complex things to deal with in terms of where he's going to lie in state, you know, whether it's going to be closed or open casket, all of this stuff. And particularly when it is an assassination, this becomes a lot more complicated, which fortunately has not happened that many times. So in real life, as in the film, Jackie Kennedy modeled this sort of like really long procession that his casket was taken on through the city on the same sort of March that Lincoln's 
casket was taken on after he was assassinated. And the contention of the film, which seems to me to be extremely plausible, I don't know the extent to which this was based on actual documented evidence, was that she was trying to bolster his legacy and the image of him as someone who was really important and had achieved a lot. Yeah, which Um, is sort of the classic scenario for wives of famous public figures, you know, like Mozart or whatever, where it's someone who, in retrospect, we now have this really clear image of them and also potentially also of their death and their legacy in general. And a lot of the time that's shaped by what their widow or possibly what their children were doing behind the scenes. A lot of the time it's one of these sort of women's invisible roles in history. (laughs) That's definitely part of the... I wouldn't describe it as a message, but that's like one of the, the main themes of the movie. But like yeah, tonally, it was, it's also like, it's like a very intense emotional kind of psychological drama with bits of horror, which is not what you'd expect as well. So it's like super atypical as a biography. Yeah, but the historical stuff was interesting to me because what she also did was she had her children come with her to see the casket lying in state. And there are really famous photos of this happening and I saw them when I was a kid studying this. And I have vivid memories of what those pictures look like. Basically, she, in the film, she takes them out and everyone's kind of like, are you sure you want to take the kids out? They're going to be a bunch of photographers. And she says, like, yes, like, basically, like, that's the point. I want the pictures. I mean, she doesn't articulate that explicitly, but that's clearly what's going on. Yeah. And um, I just was sort of like, oh, my God. Like, yes, that's the thing I remember from this funeral. Like, And she, and I knew that they had, gone in this long procession and her whole argument is like I want people to remember this and I don't know anything about any president's funeral except JFK's it's also like it's such a great way of showing people how the behind the scenes stuff works for people who are really good at controlling their own public image because she's one of these people like Angelina Jolie or Princess Diana who are just like they have phenomenally good instincts and they're very thoughtful about the the way they're presenting themselves to the world and kind of everyone knows that about Jackie Kennedy in the kind of sense of her fashion sense but obviously that doesn't really get much respect and this movie gives you insight into the kind of psychology behind decisions that she was making that were really specific to do with the way that she wanted to make her and her family look in public and also like the way that they frame it around an interview she's like constantly editing the interview in the middle of the process so she's being interviewed by this reporter all of the rest of the movie, she's very kind of vulnerable. Her entire thing is that she's very feminine, both like genuinely and in terms of presentation. But when she's with this reporter, she's really kind of viciously shooting him down whenever he says <laughs> something that she doesn't want. And she's always telling him not to quote her on certain things because she's crafting this image of herself. So like, you know, there's one point where she's lighting a cigarette and then she's like, I don't smoke. Right. <laughs> Which was a huge secret. I mean, no one knew that she smoked until... Much after the fact, I was reading some article about this. It was sort of like baby baby boomers scandalized to see this depiction of Jackie Kennedy where she smokes as she did in real life. And I was like, oh, (laughs) the scandal of of the first lady smoking a cigarette. (laughs) Horror, horror. And what's interesting about that interview dynamic, the interviewer is played by Billy Crudup, who does a really good job, is that he clearly doesn't like her because he sort of figured out what her deal is in terms of I mean, obviously, she's very explicitly telling him, don't put that in, don't put that in. So it's not like she's pretending that anything is going on except what's actually happening. Yeah. But um, part of the sort of tension of this interaction that they're having is that he doesn't really make it that subtle that he doesn't like her. 
Yeah, it's very combative and she's got this great American aristocracy thing going on. She's got a lot of extremely kind of confident put-downs for this man. Yes, that is certainly the case. (laughs) It sets up a dynamic within the film of her being surrounded by men who have to be very polite to her. This man is probably... He's he's polite. It's not like he can be expressly rude to the first lady or former first lady by this point. Um, But they also don't really respect her. And even Bobby Kennedy, who's played by Peter Sarsgaard, who clearly has a lot of affection for her, and I think does take her more seriously than any of the other men in the film. Yeah, I mean, Bobby Kennedy's the only one that she really has a personal relationship with where like yeah. you can kind of you know they obviously illustrate kind of the love between them and stuff but um like but even other he people has some moments like, oh where yeah he yeah is sort of says some nasty things to her and also about, he's, it's very kind of yeah. you know trying to protect the little lady kind of situation yeah which makes perfect sense because like of course um, <laughs> right everyone else in the movie is sort of um political advisors and the only other person who's really a main character is her kind of personal assistant, her personal secretary, who was with her her whole life, who I forgot what her real name is, but she was known as Tucky. She's played by Greta Gerwig. Um, Tucky, my yeah. god. They, they were like college roommates and they're both, you know, it's the kind of classic lady-in-waiting royal situation. Yeah. Which kind of plays into the whole kind of dynastic, aristocratic Camelot thing that frames every conversation about the Kennedys. Sorry, I'm still on Tucky. Uh... <laughs> Well, yeah, and she does the... Natalie Portman does the Jackie Kennedy accent, which is amazing. I saw some... It was funny. I saw some sort of reviews of this where some people were impressed by the accent and some people thought it was really distracting and not well-executed and whatever. And I thought it was extremely well-executed, but also um, I thought it really added to the film because... I think you need to understand that she is from this kind of other time. Yes. And that she has an alien quality. Part of which also I think is Natalie Portman is really, really skinny in this movie as oh God, Jack Kennedy was. very skinny. <laughs> and there is just something about her literal physical presence, but also the way she carries herself and her ridiculous clothes that make her seem just kind of like nobody else in yes, the I, world. I mean, I like I do not know much about the Kennedys or Jackie Kennedy because I'm not American, so I've not been like <laughs> raised on this shit. And I don't think I'd ever heard her voice before. So like the accuracy level was not relevant to me, even though like apparently it is very accurate. But I really thought it was an effective choice. Cause if they'd had her talking, I guess, in like a more normal way it would have removed from, like Morgan said, kind of the uh, the otherworldly quality. But also because the film is told not in chronological order, it kind of cuts between the interviews in various different periods during this week. But there's also flashbacks to this documentary she filmed for TV, which was sort of the first TV look into the White House, where she gives this tour of all of the stuff that she's done to redecorate and all these historical objects that she was using to kind of highlight the legacy of the United States and that sort of thing. And it's just so amazing because like her performance is so stilted and weird. Yes. But, like because it's period TV and it wasn't sort of like a casual normal thing that people would do like a house tour. But it's just so great because like she does behave really weirdly and it's something that in a more traditional biopic would come off 
as really hokey or they just wouldn't risk doing because they wanted to seem more naturalistic but in this all of the direction is just intentionally taking stuff really over the top and making it far more intense and Natalie Portman's like a perfect choice for that because she's not going to be all like yes I'm a very serious naturalistic method actor she's just gonna be like I will be crying hysterically for this whole movie <laughs> which she's not I mean it's actually like one of her less crying roles in the long history of Natalie Portman crying roles but she does have that sort of tremulous quality and she's really good at melodrama and trembling facial expressions and being like a delicate flower you know <laughs> <laughs> but also very steely yes which yes. is the it's other really thing she's very good at yeah just this and black swan together very different films but it also makes me quite glad that um darren aronofsky didn't end up directing this because he was kind of originally planned to yeah i think this i liked black swan a lot when i saw it although i haven't seen it since it came out but i think this is much better oh god no of course um, like i mean black swan is good I, I think i probably liked it less than you did but uh, this is this movie is like brilliant <laughs> yes well i think what works so well about it is that it's simultaneously it's aesthetically brilliant and she's so good but it also is about something in a very real way yeah which most movies aren't really like that sounds terrible but there's like a lot of thematic stuff going on but without it sort of being pedantic. And just the idea of this kind of era of American history being over, which feels very appropriate for our current moment. And also her trying to preserve all of this physical stuff, which may or may not be that important. And I think the movie kind of leans in the direction of it, of it having value, but it doesn't exactly sort of definitively state that. So like her thing is that she clearly likes material things and her role has been to keep house obviously and she and jfk have had these fights about her buying too much stuff and on and on and on yeah but it's sort of it's legacy antiques lincoln's bed and that sort of thing so she's outfitting the white house with historical items rather than being like oh what i was gonna say was that before they got into the white house it's made clear that this was not the case right that like she was just buying things for their house and that one, what else was she supposed to do? She doesn't have a job. They have a ton of money. I mean, obviously she has children to raise, but... But they have, like, two nannies. And right. she has a personal assistant. <laughs> right. So it's kind of like she has to occupy herself in some way. But It was actually one... really surprising to me to find out that Jackie Kennedy had a job in later life. Yeah. Um, she worked as an editor, like a book editor. Yeah, well, on. her life sort of took lots of wild yeah. turns. But... She, once they got to the White House, she's focused on all of this sort of historical stuff. And he was still annoyed about it because they say in the film, he sort of wanted to, you know, do the work of government and have, that was more important. And that all this sort of frivolous, these frivolous things didn't really matter. And she thinks that it does. And they have all these conversations about being in the White House and, the significance of that and the idea of having a sort of repository of stuff sort of for America and the idea that this previous presidents actually lived there, like in a real way, as opposed to just being this abstract notion of America, even though that's what the movie is also about. And I found that really interesting because it is in a way sort of coding the materialistic stuff as female but also taking it quite seriously. So there's a bit of a 
dichotomy there, but again, the movie doesn't fully come down on either side, um, but more on her side, I think. And also the just romance of, of having a certain kind of presence in the White House. So when she and Bobby kind of get into the fight that they have later in the film, he is lamenting the fact that they could have gotten a lot more done because JFK was only in office for like two-ish years and didn't actually achieve very much. And the paradox about him is always that he's remembered more than most presidents and didn't do very much at all and actually did some things that were not very productive. But he was good-looking and dead. Yes, so. exactly. And Bobby says, and this is one of the best lines in the films, I think, is basically that says he says something like, we are just the beautiful people, which is exactly what they were. Yeah. And that's not the most productive thing for governance of a country, but there is something very powerful about having the people in the White House have that aura about them, and that's the whole Camelot thing. I'm not saying that's like a positive or a negative, but there is something undeniably evocative about that, and that is why everyone's obsessed with the Kennedys, and always has been. Yeah, because it's like the whole conflict between her and Bobby is that, you know, they both know that they're celebrities, and she knows how to be a celebrity because that's literally her job, whereas Bobby Kennedy is kind of using the fact that the Kennedys are celebrities to get elected and try and put forward a political agenda, which is obviously his yes, job. correct. But she's obviously a lot more comfortable with that because her entire career is being a celebrity wife. Yeah. And the result is that her work means that JFK is remembered really strongly, but she's mostly remembered as someone who made the pillbox hat fashionable. Yes. And then the whole <laughs> crisis of the movie, right, is once he's gone, what's she supposed to do? Especially yeah. since he was a really shitty husband. He was horrible. So yeah, I mean, Didn't he cheat on her with just, like, a whole bunch of people? Yes. Like, constantly. I mean, this, yeah. she says at one point in the movie, basically, like, he is essentially never at home. He was a serial adulterer. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is a commonly known fact now, but at the time, they were the golden couple of America, and she had to present this face to the world and she was meanwhile dealing with all of this and he was off sleeping with like Marilyn Monroe or whoever. I don't know much about the Kennedys but I think like my first exposure to their life was reading Gore Vidal's autobiography (laughs) which is obviously not the most flattering of historical accounts because I think he was just talking about him cheating on her constantly. Yeah (laughs) so uh... (laughs) he was not great in that department. But in this, he's got a really fantastic role because obviously there are some flashbacks, but they cast this Danish actor who, I think we both kind of agreed that his dialogue was dubbed, but he only has about three lines and he sort of appears like a ghost in these occasional flashback scenes. So, you know, they're dancing at a White House ball and obviously you do see the assassination take place, but they just cast someone who looks really, really similar to John F. Kennedy. It's and like crazy. the whole thing's about her internal relationship with him, but his actual role is nothing, which is exactly how it should be. Right, because it's about her and not actually about him, which is so refreshing. Yeah. It's like And also great. it's about her relationship with his legacy and what she's going to be doing next, as opposed to flashing back to this wonderful love story they had, because that's not really a thing. Right. And think about the number of biopics about a marriage and then the dude cheats on her and it's like well this is terrible I'm so upset and then 15 minutes later she's like I guess I still love you 
And also, if it's a biopic, it's usually like, well, he is a great man. Exactly. <laughs> and that is kind of the thing here, but it's like a fantastically well-drawn portrait of femininity and stuff, which we know. It's kind of what we've been talking about for the whole podcast, but they also treated her costumes in a really interesting way, because any movie about Jackie Kennedy is going to be this really intensive costume drama, because she's so famous for being a fashion plate, and she... There's one really great scene towards the end, which is kind of a bit heavy-handed, but still really effective, where you see people unloading mannequins for a shop window, and they're all wearing Jackie Kennedy outfits, because she kind of shaped fashion, and the pink suit that she was wearing when Kennedy was assassinated was really famous, but they obviously do really showcase all the costumes, and they look great, and there's a really fantastic scene where you sort of see her drunkenly trying on all her ball gowns in the White House, because she's all alone and has nothing else to do while she's grieving. But I think the film sort of intentionally emphasises how uncomfortable all of those clothes were. Yes. Because in historical dramas, you virtually never see women's discomfort. So the only thing you ever see is extremely beautiful by modern standards women like Kira Knightley being laced into corsets because people are obsessed with fetishizing women getting laced into corsets yes. for extremely <laughs> obvious reasons. But the general discomfort of wearing clothes is not seen on film except when you're lacing corsets or when there's like a businesswoman taking off her shoes and rubbing her heels before changing into a pair of sneakers. And in this, they don't really lean on it, but there's a couple of scenes that I really, really liked, which is the first one where you see her taking off her pink suit, which she intentionally keeps on because she wants the cameras to see the blood. So even when she's in shock, she kind of knows that she wants people to be aware of her pain while also still being really aristocratic and impassive. So it looks like an unintentional gesture where she's calm but grieving, but also you can see the blood. So it's like really effective choice on behalf of her as a person. But then when you finally see her take it off in the White House, it's like if you've ever had to wear tights and a skirt. <laughs> it's like a very evocative image of when you've had to wear tights and a skirt and then you take them off and it feels great. You yes. Know? It's like anyone who has to wear a bra, you're like, it's great to take off my bra. <laughs> so there's the, they have that kind of illustration of that. Obviously, you know, multiplied by a million because it's stained with her husband's blood. Right. So it's not really the same thing, but it's very physical and recognisable. And then later on, there is a much less memorable scene that I also really enjoyed for similar reasons where it's kind of shortly after the assassination and people are in, I think it's a hospital waiting room and you have a collection of women, one of whom is I think her assistant and the rest are just random women who are never identified. And then a bunch of men who are sort of the Bobby Kennedy and a bunch of political officials. And they're watching TV to see what the latest update is. And all of the women are sitting down and all of the men are standing up. But all of the women have to sit with sort of, they're all wearing these horribly uncomfortable 1960s heels, which you can just look at and you know that they're like a nightmare to yes. wear. And they're all sitting with their legs crossed like Anne Hathaway in the Princess Diaries to one side and wearing these really restrictive suits. And then, like, later on when she's finding the grave, having to go through, like, rainy graveyard in high heels and a suit, it really shows the physical sensation of the choices that she makes to wear the clothes that she wants to wear and also the restrictiveness. And it's, like, so kind of frustrating as a viewer to watch that, that you keep thinking that there's going to be this moment where she kind of flies off the handle and no longer pays attention to her appearance. But of course that never happens because it's Jackie Kennedy. So the tension's there, but it doesn't happen. And that's one of the ways that it kind of uses horror techniques in a really good way. Because yeah. it feels like the build up to a horror moment that never comes, which kind of ties into the soundtrack, which has got Score. this 
it's not yeah, the, the soundtrack. Score. The soundtrack is songs. Scores. I apologize. Yes, very important. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which ties into the score um, by Mika Levy, who is a genius and also did Under the Skin, which I have mixed feelings about. I think Under the Skin is a masterpiece and I highly recommend it. I love, I love the score, as everyone does. But for this, it's sort of sumptuous classical slash 1960s instrument usage so there's a lot of woodwind and there's also a vibraphone which is not something you hear much yeah in like in film scores so you've got vibraphone and flute and I, I think maybe clarinet or something but it's this really intensive romantic drama soundtrack that you see in movies from like the I guess like 50s and 60s but it has this nauseating swoop kind of representing her grief and fear that happens all the time and it's extremely arresting. It's just such a good composer. <laughs> there, If anyone's seen There Will Be Blood, that movie opens on this kind of... That's all strings, that film. But um, it opens on this sort of crescendo note that's very... It just the, immediately sets the mood of like horrible tension. And this is very similar but sort of going down instead of going up. I don't know exactly what it is, but it reminded me of that a lot, except almost like the opposite, except that then she repeats it over and over and over and over again in the film, which makes you just feel like you're trapped. <laughs> like, oh, as she is indeed in the White House in this sort of prison of grief. Um, the cinematography is incredible as well. He uses a bunch of different kinds of film stock, I believe. I'm pretty yes. sure that's what it was. I don't think. And also, this is one of the rare movies where I actually noticed the aspect ratio. Because, <laughs> like, as soon as the movie started, I was like, interesting aspect ratio choice, and then felt very smug to myself. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does, it kind of uses this sort of um, boxy. It's not. Uh, like, more television. It's not 4.3, and it's not. It's 18.7 is the sort of wider one that often gets used. It's sort of in between, which is interesting. It's an unusual shape yeah. for modern yeah. cinematic film. And, uh,. Some of the more public moments are shot on really technicolorish stock. So, like when they're getting out of the plane to greet people in Dallas, it's very, very brightly colored. Or like walking in the funeral procession. And then at other times, it's more, I don't want to say realistic because it's still a film, but color corrected in a different way. Yeah, I mean, the scenes when she's talking to John Hurt's uh, priest character basically look like you're watching like a modern yes. film, shot on film. I mean, and also there was um, the kind of White House tour thing. Right. Which is very, kind which, of, very stylized because they've shot it on black and white video. Like the thing and then, did, yeah, yeah, they've degraded it. Yeah, I should say John Hurt has a very small role playing a Catholic priest whom she talks to a few times, which, you know, may he rest, I actually thought seeing him. I hadn't known he was in the film and he's wonderful and I wondered about his health and then a couple of days later got the answer to that question. But he's really great too. And they use a little bit of dubbing from the original TV special that they're sort of copying, which was funny. Um, I've never seen that. Some of the people I had seen and heard talking about it on reviews and podcasts and stuff were like, well, I don't know why they needed to reshoot all of that, because I watched that in history class when I was growing up, and I was like, well, I certainly did not, so <laughs> I, I mean, appreciated I, it. <laughs> I assumed that it was something that some people would have seen, but the idea of assuming that everyone's watched a fucking Jackie Kennedy yeah. TV special Sorry. is just like, no, that's not, it's not the moon landing. <laughs> correct, correct. But it is interesting to sort of think about this film in terms of the award season stuff because I think it was Joe Reed 
who writes for, I think, Decider, in any event, he's on Twitter, even if I got that website wrong, observed somewhere, and I immediately realized this is completely true, that the second a film becomes like a big vehicle for a Best Actress nomination, in almost all cases, that it gets way fewer nominations in other categories. Like, it sort of becomes... Because it's seen as, like, the girl's film. Yes. For her, and then nothing else. Right. Like, you can have one thing, but not both. Right. (laughs) And so this did get three, which is, like, great for the movie. It's difficult to get nominations at all. And it was actually... I was really excited about Mika Levy because the... um, Music branch, the Oscars, so if people don't know the way the Oscar nominations work, is that people in the individual branches vote for their own category. So, like, if you are an actor, you get to vote for the acting nominations and nothing else except Best Picture, which everyone gets to vote for. So some of the branches are really insular and kind of incestuous, and music is infamously the worst of these. So yeah. Thomas Newman got nominated for Passengers and everyone was like, what? But then also, oh, right, of course, because Thomas Newman has been nominated a gajillion times and everyone loves him. And there aren't really that many people in the sort of mainstream context who do scores for films. It's a relatively short list. And so they all just nominate each other over and over and over again. It's also a hotly contested category. It's actually the most male-dominated category, I believe. I think that is cinematography where a woman has never been nominated before. Oh, I, I meant more just in Hollywood in general because I think it's like something like 1% of film composers are women. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that 1% must be Mika yeah. Levy. <laughs> so I was thrilled that she got in and then the Moonlight score did too, which was not at all like a sure thing. And there was one other one that was a bit odd that people were excited about. Um, but that was, I, I think it was, it was so buzzy, this score, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was going to get in. So that was great. And then the costumes kind of, I don't want to say it doesn't count because that's not at all what I mean, but in terms of this theory about like the actress canceling other things out, having a movie like Jackie get nominated for costumes is the exact sort of thing that gets nominated for costumes. It's, yeah. I mean, the, the costume category this year is nonsense. Continuing in my annual habit <laughs> right. of just being like, why? Because <laughs> the entire costume category is just four historical dramas and La La Land uh, got Harry in. Potter. La La Land got in. Yeah, La La Land, which I will accept. But I think after we saw La La Land, I was just like, this is going to get nominated for costumes because people are wearing brightly colored clothes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have nominated it, but it is... You know, no. contemporary. I think I, I wrote up like a little alternate list. I can't remember what it is right now, but we're going to do an Oscars podcast yeah. um, closer to the date. But we'll, we'll do all the there's details. Definitely then. a bunch of gendered stuff that plays into yeah, so kind of Jackie. This is a very weird movie. So I think certainly I can understand people watching it and just not getting it and not liking it. It's, it's cold in certain ways. It, I could see people be feeling alienated. I was completely enraptured the whole time. I loved it. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. And I would certainly highly recommend it to anyone if you could not gather that, that from this podcast. <laughs> but even though it's But it weird, doesn't fulfill the expectations of a biopic. Right. But despite this, I strongly feel that if this movie were about a man, it would have gotten eight on of nominations. And if you look at other movies that they have liked about men. It really makes you think. Admittedly, a lot of those films were more kind of bland. I mean, I mean, biopic films about men. I mean, also films about men in general. This is sort of a a standard thing. 
But it was interesting to me because it kind of plays into the whole idea of the film, which is about women not being given any sort of serious consideration in history. Um, the most obvious example of this is obviously the King's Speech, which in 2011 won picture, director, I think it was original screenplay, it may have been adapted, I can't remember, and actor for Colin Firth. And that film is like the most fucking boring thing I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. Like, who cares about that movie? It's so wild. Because, like, as soon as Morgan brought this up when we were kind of talking about comparisons, I was just like, holy shit. It's, like, the perfect example. Because, so, The King's Speech is, I guess I would describe it as likable. So, I like Colin Firth. Everyone likes Colin Firth. If you're someone who enjoys historical dramas about the British royal family, you will enjoy this film. But the idea of it having, like, a really intense impact on you unless you have a speech impediment and it's the first time that you've seen a film depicting this. That's like the one instance in which I'd be like, I totally understand why you're engaging with this film. But in the general kind of artistic context of movies being nominated for a billion Oscars, like the King's Speech does not deserve that. It's, you know, the performance from Colin Firth is fine, but he literally thanked the director of another film in his speech when he accepted the Oscar because everyone knew that his performance the year before was better in A Single Man. Right. And the film, it, it honestly is just like a BBC high budget historical drama like a tv movie it doesn't have anything going for it no it's fine it's just fine and it's quite forgettable i mean who has it's... watched that movie since 2011 i mean people I... on planes right i'm sure someone has but yeah and then the other film that was up against that year was the social network which is a biopic about a white man filmed in a more interesting way that was nominated for bajillion oscars yeah, I, I never saw The Social Network and I now think it's too late. I didn't like because it. Because if I watch it now, it's going to be like a bizarre a bizarre kind of historical artifact. I do not think it was good. It was certainly better than The King's Speech and people were obsessed with it at the time. And Oh, I remember. There yes. was a lot of fan fiction. Yes, it was sort fiction. of two different types of obsession. There was that yeah, and then all the that, film yeah. critics. <laughs> it still gets put near the top of like best movies of the decade so far, which I frankly do not understand because... The performances are excellent. The direction is very good. The screenplay is not. Aaron Sorkin has some problems. It's not completely awful, but I don't really understand why. But even, okay, so you go down the list of, like, best picture nominees from the past few years. And it is astonishing the number of them. I mean, obviously the stereotype of movies that get nominated for a ton of Oscars is, you know, a historical figure who goes through some kind of tribulation or is potentially a Nazi. Right. Like, that's the that's the kind of the category. Yes. And, and it's not, like... Relatively held true. Yeah, and, like, it is slightly unfair because especially recently, I think that kind of film has not been as much sort of what they've gone for. But... I mean, it's literally Eddie Redmayne. Right. <laughs> right, but I mean, that like, they also have, like, There Will Be Blood got nominated for a bunch and No Country for Old Men won that year and... That movie's fucked up. <laughs> like, this dark shit. Like, 2010, in addition to The King's Speech and The Social Network, there also was The Fighter, which is a superb film, but a biopic about multiple white men. 127 Hours, which was a movie about a real white man. Let's see. 2011, actually, there were none that year. Oh no, Moneyball, real story about white men. And, like, Midnight in Paris, which was not really, but, like, and Hugo. But yeah, I mean, which, the, trend, like, the trend is very obvious, um, and I think. 
So Lincoln is another thing where, like, I actually like that movie a lot. But, like, it gets nominated for all these, like, major categories. And you could go down the list, right? The two egregious ones from um, two years ago are The Imitation Game and The Theory of Everything. The Imitation Game got nominated for Best Director. I do not recommend you watch this film. Same director as Passengers, uh, our favorite movie of last year. Honestly, I, I thought my head was going to fall off when I found out that Passengers was nominated for Oscars, but we will, we will discuss that in a couple of right. weeks. <laughs> and so when you think about a movie like this, which incidentally was written and directed by two men, so it's not even like this is a bunch of women making a film like this getting not nominated for things. In fact, the sort of major female creative forces were nominated, so I guess that's nice. At yeah. least you really do realize, like, oh, okay, so this isn't taken seriously at all. I don't really follow kind of the Oscars critic media in the same way that Morgan does, but definitely Natalie Portman's performance it doesn't get as much wide recognition as <laughs> the type of movie where you just see someone like in a trench in World War One crying for two hours. Right. I mean, for a while, everyone sort of thought she and Emma Stone were going to be the two big ones, and now everyone knows Emma Stone's going to win, which. I- don't get me started. Um, <laughs> but I think the reason this is so interesting, aside from just being annoying, is that it is literally exactly what the movie is about. Precisely. And so it's almost like they sort of predicted that this was what was going to happen. Like, she's not taken seriously. And they finally did make the movie about her in a way that is all about how she's not taken seriously and i almost wonder if they had done a movie where i mean she does cry quite a bit in the film but actually not that much there's one scene where it's like a close-up of her face as she's sobbing for the most part she's pretty much either just in shock yeah or controlling an intentional thing in the context of natalie portman as an actress because she cries in every film she said there's quite a bit she said quite a few comedies as well actually yeah i mean i just not crying thor for instance no no i'm not saying she's like a limited performer i just mean that she's you know there's actresses who they do a lot of sad movies but they're not known for crying whereas natalie portman is someone where people make youtube compilations of her crying scenes you know yeah. She's a famous crier. <laughs> <laughs> they could have had a Jackie Kennedy movie where she, they play into all the things that are criticized in this movie, right? Where she could have just been sort of like flopping around, weeping, crying over yeah, her Yeah, I children. mean, you end up with um, the film that Nicole Kidman made last year that sank without trace. She made a really disastrous historical biopic. Grace of Monaco? Grace of Monaco. I mean, that's like a whole nother story. Yeah, we will we will not tackle Grace of Monaco. It's not really on the same artistic level, but like that's what basically Morgan is describing as the alternate right. universe version of the Jackie movie where you have a Grace of Monaco movie where it's like, there's so many dresses and she has trials. Right, <laughs> and like men help her. And I wonder if that would have done better. I think it would have in terms of the Oscars yeah. anyway, which is fascinating to I think, mean, I think about. I mean, who knows? It's because but... of the people who made it. Because when you think about, I mean, Pablo Lorraine not gonna care obviously it would be great for him if this movie was nominated for more oscars but this is not the kind of film that he would be making right he wouldn't be making the grace of monaco movie and the screenwriter who oh we should God. probably wrap up soon but we just need to mention yes, the screenwriter it, before we finish because must be his backstory is fascinating nor oppenheim his main career is that he's a tv news producer so he co-created 
Mad Money with Jim Cramer, I believe. He was a producer on the Today Show for a while. He's an NBC guy. He's not a reporter, but he's like the producer who kind of shapes the news in like big news shows. He also wrote the screenplays adapting Maze Runner and the second Divergent movie. So he's adapted to bad young adult movies. And also this is like clearly his passion project because he was pitching it for years as a sort of HBO miniseries set around the same time period. So it'd be like a seven days in the life of Jackie Kennedy drama. And then it eventually evolved into being this film. But what a fascinating selection of achievements for this gentleman. I would love (laughs) to have a conversation with that man. I mean, God, yeah. What must he be like? I would love to know. Because he's clearly extremely informed about politics. Yeah. And also somehow wound up being the screenwriter for these two poorly reviewed teen movies, which I would not put on him. I've not read either of these books, but I have not had positive impressions, especially of Divergent. Right. But how he wound up doing that is fascinating. And then instead of like, sometimes, you know, you hear about people who work as, you know, news reporters, they work for a long time in TV and they're like, well, I know about this, so I'm going to write a political novel. And it's always like either about, you know, like a middle-aged self-insert reporter. Yes. You know, you have like a girl with a dragon tattoo self-insert character, or it's about, you know, it's like a biography of someone like Jackie, uh, of someone like Bobby Kennedy. But he was like, no, I'm I'm going to do the Jackie Kennedy female-focused gender examination emotional drama <gasps> with Pablo Lorraine. Like, what what a fascinating choice. I mean, he's... I, I need to know more. Yeah. We should call him and get him to be on the podcast. Yeah. Our first interview. Like, we have, <laughs> we have some questions for you, sir. Yeah. Uh, please, get back to us. Um... Yeah, really pretty wild. I need to see more of Pablo Lorraine's stuff. He has another movie coming out this year or Neruda. last year. He's got a Pablo Neruda movie coming well, out. Just stop. stop. Which I plan to see at the Glasgow Film Festival next month. Oh, so jealous. <laughs> it also sounds quite peculiar. I've not watched a trailer for it or anything, but yeah. it looks unusual. He had one called No with Gael Garcia Bernal a few years ago that I never saw. This also has Bernal. Yeah. I'm Always excited because I recently started watching Mozart in the Jungle. And <laughs> some personal news, I'm in love with him. Yes, he is a wonderful <laughs> man. Anyway, watch Jackie. Great yeah. film. And and nominate us for the Hugos. We are yes. we are eligible in the podcast category. Admittedly, this week's podcast I expect is mostly being listened to by our cinema fans rather than our geek culture fans, but Hugos are a big sci-fi and fantasy award. We, as sci-fi fantasy critics, are eligible for the podcast, so uh, nominate us. Please. Yes, that would be excellent. What are we doing next week? Do we have any plans? Uh, we will no. let you know. We, have, we haven't figured this out yet. <laughs> it's, and it's a fun adventure for you as well as us. I'm very busy. We will be back, but I have not had time to think ahead more than like 24 hours, so it's all kind of a Yeah, thrill. I mean, a kind of conservative estimate, I spend 16 hours a day taking news reports, putting them in a blender and like force feeding them down my throat like some kind of horrifying scientific experiment. Yes, me too. I can feel my me body too. starting to like evolve and mutate. It's it's really intensive. There's a lot of problems happening. Yeah. So <laughs> So I hope so you we'll enjoyed be back next week with a mystery non-political themed podcast. Yeah, I hope you all enjoyed this 45 minutes of not talking <laughs> about that. So thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, 
We would love it if you left a rating or review on iTunes. It's how we find new listeners. And you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, and on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.